That's What She Said with Sarah Spain is presented by Coors Light, the beer made to chill. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Hey, it's Sarah reminding you to check out the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny. This week, Mina and Field the Eights discuss Cam Newton landing in New England before previewing the AFC South. You can find the Mina Kimes Show featuring Lenny wherever you get your podcasts. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. That's what she said. Well, that's what she said. Welcome to That's What She Said, conversations with interesting people from the world of sports, music, comedy, and more, talking about their lives, careers, successes, and failures. My name is Jamel Hill, and my dilemma is, what am I going to do when we have to go back to a world where I'm forced to wear a bra every day? Like right now, I've been living in a braless existence, but one day I'm going to have to put on a bra. And so my dilemma is, what do I do then? What do I do when my liberation is compromised? Oh, Jamel, you make it too easy on me. I just talked about how bras are totally unnecessary during quarantine unless you're exercising or going down the stairs at a high rate of speed. So don't even worry. I mean, yeah, when you get back into everyday life, you'll probably have to put one on. But might I suggest some sort of gradual, slow process wherein you reintroduce the bra to your life, but maybe without underwire. Get one of those dumb ones for people with small boobs where there's no underwire and it doesn't actually support you, but gives you the feel of having a bra on and then gradually work your way from that back to the real deal, which is the support that you're going to need to get out in public for, you know, your TV shows and everything else. Because again, it's a personal choice. You could get back into the world without any bra whatsoever, but I fear that the focus would then not be on the excellent content that you and Carrie Champion are providing on your new Vice show, but rather uh, about those tatas. So yeah, it's an inevitable. We're all going to, we're all going to have to get back to it, but uh, maybe, maybe a slow introduction, you know, a sports bra every other day, just to, to get that feeling back before you dive back in, into the real world and at home, you know, do whatever the hell you want. We've already established that uh, boob commando is now completely socially acceptable at all times in your own home and always has been, by the way, the commish has spoken. This week's guest is my friend, Jamel Hill. She's a writer for The Atlantic, the host of Unbothered with Jamel Hill on Spotify, co-host of the new Vice show Disruptors with Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion. She has a podcast on The Ringer with Van Lathan called Way Down in the Hole, recapping The Wire. And she was a former ESPNer for 12 years. I sometimes refer to her as my personal career fairy godmother. Uh, in fact, during this conversation, we talk about how you know, if she stays friends with you long enough, you'll get a show with her. And I, I kind of said I'm waiting, but she already got me on TV. And if you listen to the first time she came back on the pod, uh, very first episode of That's What She Said was with Jamel. And we talk about how you know, she really has been this massive impact on my career, a great mentor and great influence. Um, so it was really fun to catch up with her, talk about whether she misses ESPN, uh, what really happened with the six and, and that show ending and what it feels like now to see so many outspoken ESPN employees about race issues, social issues, um, even some politics and, and whether she's happy to see that or whether she's, um, frustrated and angry about the way things get went down uh, with her eventually leaving the company in part due to um, her tweet about the president and follow-ups after that. We also talk about the new show Disruptors, what we can expect from that, about hosting a podcast at The Ringer as a person of color and the recent comments from Bill Simmons, her Below Deck episode where she had a bachelor party on the Bravo TV show Below Deck, some of the behind the scenes on that. And we even get into that uh, infamous photo with uh, me and Michael Smith and Jamel and Mark Cuban and Elika Sadehi and uh, and uh, the partying that led to it. That was a really fun episode. Hope you guys enjoy it. That's what she said. So the first time Jamal Hill was on this podcast, it was episode one of That's What She Said. Slightly different format, but, you know, similar concept. And uh, they told me that I didn't have to worry about swearing because it wasn't the radio. It was a podcast. And I didn't know that they meant they would have to bleep out every word. Uh, I thought that they meant just go for it. And so Jamal epically made the That's What She Said debut by telling an expletive-filled story about a lesbian baby shower in a strip club. And they kept it in. And that's when I knew that I did have, uh, you know, censored, but uh, more freedom than I could ever imagine with this podcast. Um, So Jamal is back. And we don't have to go through where she came from, who she is, how she got there, because we already did that. But boy, have things changed since the last time you were on, Jamal. Um, Welcome back. 
No, I, you know what? I totally forgot until you said something that I told that story. I'm like, oh, damn, I did tell that story. Uh, yeah, you came in strong. Yeah, I did. I mean, I, I was only trying to deliver high heat. Uh, no, it feels good to be back. And I guess I would have never guessed when I first appeared on the show where I would be now. I'm much to your point about how much things have changed. Yeah. Well, let's start with uh, one of the easiest ones. You're married now. How's married life to old boy? Uh, married life is great. Um, a lot of people have asked me this question, particularly, I'm sure you get it too. I mean, even though uh, you've been in this marriage game a little longer than I have about what it's like to be newlyweds in this pandemic. And despite what people may think, it's not like a recreation of your honeymoon. You know, the honeymoon, <laughs> we were waking up in Kenya, in, in Dubai, in the Maldives. It's a lot different when we're waking, waking up, especially these days, because we just moved into a new house. And so we're waking up to a painter being here or an electrician or a plumber or somebody. And we both have a lot of work to do because our respective businesses are still in, you know, in, in full, going full throttle. So a lot of the day we actually spend apart, even though we're in the same uh, house. So, um, but overall it's going great. We have not gotten on each other's nerves or rather I have not gotten. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. The house. Yes, definitely. And we, you know, we can be in separate areas. So I, I feel like we still get enough of the space we may require. We're both only children. So uh, there's some, a long time that always kind of needs to be kind of figured in there, but yeah, we're, we're doing well. The question is, so uh, my husband always used to call me his lady friend before the wedding, <laughs> and he still does. Um, people said, oh, is she still your lady friend if you're married? You say, yes, always a, forever a lady friend. So is he forever old boy or is he husband now? I, I never called him old boy, by the way. That was just your friends? <laughs> yes, that was just, that was a Michael Smith and by Michael Smith, exactly. Yeah. He was the one that bought the public that. But in the social media streets, like uh, he is still known as that. And sometimes when we're out together in public, People say, oh, it's oh boy, you know, whatever. <laughs> he finds it to be relatively endearing. And despite the fact he has been upgraded to husband, right. he does not take offense. But he's he still always, responds. Yeah. he is, yes. He's always been um, just his, you know, first name to me. His friends, it's funny because his friend, he has a nickname and that, that's all his friends call him. And they would always look at me strangely when we were dating that I actually called him by his first name, which is Ian, because they all call him something else. And so I find it weird to call him by his nickname. I've only known him as Ian. So that's what I call him. (laughs) Well, and that's also like the sign that there's like potentially a love connection. Because I remember growing up, like if there was ever a dude in high school or college that called me Sarah, I was like, oh, he's into me because everyone called (laughs) me Spain. And I feel like when a guy's like courting you, he doesn't feel like the vibes are there if he's calling you just by your last name. Mm. So it was always a dead giveaway if they were going with the first name. Yeah, Um, that's a good sign. Yeah. So in addition to getting married, you've also uh, acquired 11 jobs uh, mm-hmm. in the recent past. I want to go back to ESPN because last time you were here, you were still a colleague of mine. You were at ESPN for 12 years. You were a columnist. You did Numbers Never Lie, His and Hers, Sports Center, The Six, Undefeated. You were all over the place. Um, do you miss it? No, I don't. Um, I don't. I was never one of those people who felt like I needed to be on television every day, despite the fact I will soon have a television show uh, mm-hmm. watching. It's a weekly, so it's a little different. But no, I, I never was one of those people who would who needed to be on TV every day or who, um, you know, felt like the, who I was was kind of quantifiable by being on television. So it was not that hard for me to leave it behind. I mean, I left SportsCenter while I was still an employee of ESPN. And despite the very popular narrative that I was booted off SportsCenter, that was not the case. (laughs) I actively chose to leave because I didn't like the direction uh, that the show was going. And it wasn't necessarily what I signed up for. And I think at that point, it was a mutual, you know, decision in many regards. So, um, you know, with that being said, like, I, I realized that Uh, I love to explore and amplify my versatility. And that was one of the greatest gifts I left with from ESPN is that, as you know, being there, eventually you're going to be able to flirt with and do all mediums that ESPN offers. I mean, it turns you into a a great utility player, if you will. So while I was there, I podcasted, I did radio, television, I wrote. And all I did was take all those skills that I sharpened and learned there and now that's what I do. I mean, I write a podcast and I do TV. Very same thing, except for it's just doing it for multiple entities as opposed to under one roof. So um, I don't miss 
being uh, exclusive to one network at all. Uh, I love the fact that I am able to have a lot of freedom with what I choose to do and what I don't choose to do. I don't have to worry about um, conflicting companies or, uh, you know, saying no to this entity because I'm working with that. And I don't have to really worry about any, any of that. So my independence, I would not trade this independence for what I was doing at ESPN the last, you know, uh, two years, especially. And not only under one contract, but under, or under one roof, but under one contract. So like you managed to take all your skills and get money from different places for all of them. Very smart. Very smart <laughs> by you. Um, when you look back at the six, um, now that you aren't in the moment of, of what went down there, you know, there was conversation about, um, what it was pitched to you as when what you and Michael signed up for and what you thought you were going to be able to do. And then maybe restrictions later placed on you that didn't allow it to be the thing um, that you both had imagined. When you look back at why it, it didn't end up working, why you wanted out and why maybe it wasn't as re- well received as it should have been. What do you point to for the most part? Well, I point to really how from the very beginning, I mean, I, I think we put ourselves behind the ball from the start. Um, we should not have rushed the show on in a couple months. And I get, why it was done. The thought process was they wanted to take advantage of the Super Bowl viewership. Our very first show was the day after the Super Bowl. And as you know, like for uh, television, that's a, a sports television. That's a great day. Like everybody's going to rate absurdly during that day because a lot of people want to tune in to see what you have to say about the Super Bowl, relive the game, and particularly if it's a very good Super Bowl. So, um, but we didn't finish his and hers until December. And so we're talking two months. We did less than five rehearsals. When we went on air in February, we did not know what the show was. And that's a mistake. Uh, one I will never repeat again. And we, when you look at some of the other shows that were given time to figure themselves out, like take Get Up, for example. Get Up, they mm-hmm. took about a year to figure out what the show was. And even once they got into it, um, despite all the criticism that they received, they were still able to tinker and find their identity on the air. We were not given that liberty to do that because there was a lot of publicity that our show had. I mean, Mike and I did commercials and the commercials, and even looking back on that, the marketing campaign, the way it was frame was a mistake because people thought our show wasn't actually about sports. You know, the people that I think wanted uh, Mike and I to add our personality, our flair to the six o'clock sports center. They loved all of the pop culture related things that we did. You know, the things that went viral, the skits, um, the moments where Sarah Spain beats up Reese Waters on television. (laughs) They loved all of those um, particular, you know, moments, but um, despite the fact that we did those things, the show was 98% about sports. And it, when you have a ad campaign that says music, movies, and more, people right. are thinking the six o'clock sports center is not going to be about that when that's what it was. So when we got that early narrative, negative narrative that the show isn't about sports, it was always a lie and we could never get from up under that narrative, but it's a narrative we ran with. And so I think, um, that was also something that set us back. And, you know, to be totally frank, um, we were not allowed to pick as much of our staff as we should have been. And that starts with our CP. And anybody who's in television knows the coordinating producer, very important person. This is no disrespect to the CP that we had, but that's not somebody we wanted. And I, based off the experience that we'd had on his and hers, Uh, I think we should have stuck to our guns and insisted on getting the person that we wanted. And we didn't do that. So we're bringing in somebody who's leading our show who, um, while, you know, he liked us and respected our talent, he conceptually, I don't think he got us. And so it's no blame in that. It just kind of is what it is. And so all of these creative elements were uh, really up in the air. There was a lot of creative fighting that went on. Uh, from the inception on and, and, and while we were all well intentioned and wanted the show to succeed, that is a rough way for a show to start. Then the layoffs happened and Mike and I became unfortunately the poster children of two people who did not do, deserve their jobs. And it was just funny how they targeted the two black people who right. did not deserve to have right, jobs. Right. But it wasn't just us. I mean, I'm sure you got some of that. It seemed like anybody that wasn't a white dude got targeted as somebody who didn't mm-hmm. deserve to have their job. Once those layoffs, um, you know, were made public. And so we took, we, I mean, we got lit up, uh, after that. And, um, 
I felt, you know, both of us were disappointed that the company didn't provide any defense um, of us uh, for that. And we took a lot of negative battering in the first three or four months of our show. So when I saw Get Up go through the same thing, I understood. I got it. I was like, hey, man, you preach it to the choir right here. Like people Mm -hmm. need to give you time to settle in. And, you know, once I know that people had there was those articles about what these the salary reported salary was for the individuals uh, for Jalen and Michelle Beadle at the time and and Greeny were on that show. I was like, it's going to be hard for them to get from up under that because people are going to always say, oh, you paying this for this. And it was the same thing with our contracts. It was like our contracts got reported on it, regardless of if it's true or false. Oh, you paying this for this. And especially, you know, so it, it builds a certain mentality. So it was a litany of things that happened um, prior to, you know, Donald Trump did not ruin SportsCenter or he didn't ruin the six. He had nothing to do with that. There was a lot of um, a lot of things that happened that preceded uh, that moment. And I knew before the Donald Trump thing, I wanted to leave the show. I just didn't think I would be able to do it in 2018. So I know you don't regret that it ended, but I wonder if you regret how it ended with the six and with the SPN in general. Yes, uh, I. It, it always is going to leave a bad taste in my mouth how the show ended, um, because you know, as you know, Sarah, Mike, and I are, are good friends, and that was what people loved about watching us is like our relationship and bringing that dynamic to television. And it felt like something was really taken away from us because, look, I, I know in most industries and businesses, and even if you want to throw sports into this bucket, people don't often get to choose how they leave. Usually it's a choice that's made for you. Mm -hmm. And I'm not saying that, um, you know, we were above that necessarily happening to us, but it didn't deserve to end that way. I mean, Mike knew before I decided to leave sports center that I wanted to leave in general. And I, you know, told him that I was candid with him and said like, Hey, at the end of this contract or the end of this three years, we got to do here, dude, I'm out. Like I cannot you know, I wasn't necessarily talking about leaving the ESPN in, in general, but I was just like, I can't, I cannot be a part of this, this entire machine of sports center. It's just not for me. And so, um, he understood that. And we thought by, uh, we would be able to get better as a show during that time frame and again, control our own destiny. And in many ways that was taken away from us. And so, uh, that will never sit right. Uh, you know, with me, um, because I, I thought we were just too good for the way that it, that it ultimately ended. Summer is still out there. We'll just have to work a little bit harder to make our summer moments happen. And Coors Light wants to be right there with you by making it easier to chill this summer, starting with its new chill summer can featuring sunglasses that turn blue when the beer is cold and ready to drink. Coors Light is brewed with a three-step cold process, cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged, so it's actually made to chill. Born in the Rocky Mountains of Colorado in 1978, Coors Light is refreshing, crisp, and only 102 calories. That's why Coors Light is the one to choose when you need a moment of chill. So when you want to reset this summer, reach for the beer that's made to chill. You can have Coors Light delivered by going to get.coorslight.com and finding local delivery options near you. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. I presume you're still friends with Michael Smith, so you guys are are okay. But was there a time, I know because I've seen you do many interviews since all this went down, and you always talk about feeling guilty that, you know, he walked into work that that day of the tweet and didn't realize that things were going to change and that you were the cause of that. Um, Do you... Did you have some really tense moments because of it before you were able to, you know, find that friendship again? No, we didn't have any tense moments. We had the one, the great thing about our friendship is that we were always able to be extraordinarily honest with one another. And, you know, we, we had a good enough relationship to where I, and that where Mike, if he were feeling any levels of anger toward me or resentment, he would have told me. And we had that conversation multiple times before I left post Trump tweet before I officially left Soap Sports Center. And I told him, I was like, I, if I were you, I would feel resentful toward me. So I wouldn't blame you if you felt that way and it wouldn't impact 
about how I felt about, or it wouldn't impact how I felt about you as a friend at all. It would just be you being honest. And he never, he always supported me, um, agreed with what I said and never, uh, you know, and never, uh, showed any resentment toward me. However, what he did resent and, um, you know, I know this isn't speaking out of turn because he's talked about it, you know, in, in the autopsy of Sports Center since and leaving ESPN is the company left him hanging out to dry. They had no plan for him once I left. And even during the turmoil, they did not consider how he felt during all of this turbulence is, you know, when I got suspended and he had to do the show while I wasn't there, like that wasn't fair. And, um, it, they never really took into consideration, not just how he was feeling, but just how it would make him look to try to have to pick up the pieces after something, uh, you know, like that, you know, whole, um, you know, altercation with Trump occurred. They just didn't. He was an afterthought. And that's where I felt just awful for him and where my level of guilt lies is that, uh, you know, I, I was consuming so much of the energy even though it was unintended that there was none left for him. Yeah. And, um, you know, as somebody who, as you know, how Mike approaches the job, he's, um, he's very, not just very good and, and, and very professional, but, um, very invested. And he did not wake up on, uh, you know, in September and say, my life is about to be blown up by a tweet that I didn't even send. But that was kind of, you know, sometimes your strongest, uh, trait, your strongest asset is also your biggest weakness. Our strongest asset was that we were in lockstep and we were, um, you know, we were inseparable in terms of how we approached the job and, and, and our careers and, and, and making sure that we fought together for everything. But that also means that when the breakup of, of his and hers, of Mike and Jamel eventually happened, it, that also was going to be done in tandem. So one of us couldn't leave the show without both of us leaving Leave the show. Me. Yeah. Yep. So I, I, we're friends and you know that even in the moment that you tweeted that I didn't use the language that you did, but I, you know, posted a bullet point tweet with some information about historical facts from times uh, before our president became president um, that spoke to some of the issues that you had with him. Um, so I was always on your side with the, what you were trying to get across, but I do think I understand why the manner in which you did it was received poorly, um, mm -hmm. in part because, you know, we're, we're sort of regulated in, in the way that we can, um, speak about not only people who work at other companies, but, you know, powerful figures and whatever. Um, but it's hard because, um, it's not always uniform in the way that people are policed for their language and what they say and how they say it. Um, when you see what's going on at ESPN now, in our current civil unrest, the ways that people are reacting, the ways that voices that previously maybe kept themselves quiet are feeling empowered to actually speak to racial unrest and systemic racism, everything else. Um, I've heard you say, and I know you told Dan Levitard that you were happy for the people that you were your colleagues getting to actually, you know, speak to their heart. Um, is there any part of you that's frustrated as well that the rules are different now? Um, I guess it's a frustration that I have in general, not just with a corporation like ESPN, but just how four years ago, Black Lives Matter was a cuss word and how, you know, saying that you agreed with Colin Kaepernick's decision to protest was considered controversial. And then now all of a sudden everybody's like, oh, it turns out he really was right. Like, mm -hmm. what? You know, <laughs> so you have a lot of companies and brands and people who are scrambling to be on the right side of history. And what people don't all often realize is that your opportunity to be on the right side never comes when it's convenient. It comes at the most impossible, inconvenient time. That is why the people who stand on the right side of history, when they don't have a bandwagon, when it's not um, you know, publicly supported, that's why we tend to... Um, idolize them and paint them as heroes because they did it when everybody else was going in the opposite direction. You know, I hearken back to Martin Luther King Jr. when uh, he was fighting for civil rights. The majority of the country despised this man. They thought his push for civil rights was hurting race relations. That was their moment in history to get it right. And they got it dreadfully wrong. And so now today, 
people, um, you know, saying what a hero that Martin Luther King Jr., who were not immediately on uh, his side of things, it's going to always ring hollow. And what that is going to let me know is that you lacked courage and conviction. And so I'm not necessarily, um, I'm not displeased that ESPN has done an about face because it allows me to hear more of your perspective. Um, and more conversations that I know some of my other friends and colleagues are having in private. It allows it to be seen publicly. And so, uh, cause I don't think people understand how difficult it is when you're somebody who cares about the world, cares about the country you live in. Um, clearly, I mean, are a citizen and you pay taxes and, they don't know how hard that is that when you see some of the things happening in our country to have to be silent about them, that is difficult. And so I'm happy that, you know, my colleagues and friends no longer have to make that decision as much every day. Like, Ooh, I really want to say something, but I know I can't, that it's not something sitting at the pit of their stomach, but yet I think this is an opportunity for these companies and corporations and media outlets for them to learn from their mistake is you better have the courageousness when people, when it matters the most, it doesn't, I mean, it matters now and it's great, but public's public opinion clearly has swayed. And that's the only thing that's changed. So I would hope that the next time there is this fork in the road in history that people jump on the right side before they have to be told to get on that Mm -hmm. side or before the movement moves them to that side. Right. Yeah. As Pablo Torre, I keep reusing this line because it's so good. You know, you put your finger in the air to see the, which way the money is blowing. <laughs> right. And, <laughs> right. And that's, that's how you decide whether you're okay with something. I want to move on to something, but I want to quickly ask you, um, I had been frustrated and I still am at times for limitations about what I'm allowed to speak on because of my role with ESPN. But I have noticed at times that I think it has saved me from going down rabbit holes and becoming obsessed with engaging on social media about things that aren't going to get better because of that engagement. There are things that I can do in life. There are actions I can take. There are causes I can support without the taking shots at people or the, the, some of the stuff that feels good in the moment, but doesn't actually accomplish anything. Um, that's not to say I agree with the policy or that it hasn't for the most part felt very, uh, defeating and hopeless to not be able to, you know, share my views. Uh, but I wonder in the moments that I feel like it saved me from some of that, now that you are no longer under the rules of one company and you can say whatever you want, talk about whatever you want. Do you ever feel overwhelmed or, um, like it's, like it's a burden because it can be so painful to engage and, and, and because, um, that that freedom to sort of talk about it also comes with the freedom to go back and forth and get lost and find that you've wasted time and 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 talk to people that are never going to be moved off their point. I mean, I think sometimes I'm saved by that. Yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. Um, but this is where I'm thankful for having gone through all the stuff with uh, you know, Trump and the tweet and everything because that was probably at a point. I mean, that was peak stupidity that was. <laughs> That was uh, bombarding me on social media. And I really wasn't on it that much during that time because I did kind of want to mentally protect myself from Mm -hmm. seeing some of the things. And there were days I honestly couldn't even open the app because I was getting too much um, traffic. So um, learning how to ignore it even more so during that time period was very useful because I, you know, I engage here and there. and, And sometimes it's to make a point because I feel like a, a lot of people have the same stupid point. You know, I said one thing, uh, one or two things about, you know, Bubba Wallace and, and the news. Um, and, you know, after NASCAR posted the photo of, of what everybody sees, it's the news. You know, I just had one comment on it. Like, I'm going to let the news experts take this one since they have so much to say right, right. The, 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 the day oh, before. Girl, I created an entire two tweets for Megyn Kelly on your behalf. And then I was like, <laughs> you know what? I'm, I'm stepping away. I'm stepping away. I'm like, yeah. Don't now you, you, right you want to talk about, uh, uh, like, I, I usually don't think much about the tweets. I mean, some could say we could tell. Um, and like, <laughs> I usually don't, you know, I, I put some thought into it, but it, you know, I, it's not something I belabor, but that was my response to her was something I had to erase several times because oh I, I was just like, 
Me too. And yeah. I didn't even send it. And it, it wasn't directed at me. And I was still so mad that I was no, not that. No, okay, yeah, no here. Yeah, you stuck like, in nope. Skinner's comments. Nope, nope, nope. Mention nope, the computer I was like, nope, <laughs> nope, nope, nope. Because everyone was a nope because I was, I was, I had to get the cheap shots out of my system. Yeah. Because I, I had so many lined yep. up, right? And I was like, you know what? Even though I can't stand this woman, I am not going to uh, go to, um, you know, a low place by coming after things that I'm just not going to do it. I want to, but I'm not going to do it. The petty in me, I had to beat that petty down because it was coming. And I was like, all right, I'm going to just say a couple of things. I ain't going to get to a back and forth. And, you know, uh, some of her, her followers, they were, I mean, they just had a, a field day. So uh, something like Bubba Wallace is, is, is what you're talking about. Like there is a temptation there because there's so many people who have said so many ignorant things about this to go down that rabbit hole that you're talking about. But what I learned after going through that experience with the Trump tweets is I can just say one or two things and walk away and it's fine. Like right. I'm going to let these fools argue with themselves because I don't really have the time mm-hmm. to sit here and go back and forth. Especially now, uh, ones that aren't engaging with any good faith. They're no. not, they're not going to, you could make the most sterling points and you could be indefatigable in the way that you express it and it won't matter. So at that point I do have to tell myself, okay, you, you gave it an effort. They are clearly not negotiating in good faith. They are clearly not engaging and trying to find a common ground. So walk away. They're eating up your precious time. Exactly. And so, you know, you know who those people are, because as you said, like they, they come to the, uh, the forum with such awful arguments and such straw men that they don't really want to be moved off their position. They just want, they just want you to engage them and argue with them. Mm -hmm. And I've, especially on Instagram where I, I get, uh, I get DMs, you know, that sometimes are, you know, just ridiculous and often are, are racist is I, I tell them when they, if they DM me something, try to clearly create a debate. Uh, I say, I'm not getting paid for this. So you're just going to have to figure this out on your own. It's like, I'm going to let you argue with yourself because you came here to try to argue with me so that you can feel better. I don't get paid to do that. So you're going to have to find somebody else to play around the horn with find somebody else. So, right. yeah. So it's, it's like, I'm realizing that people, uh, for some reason get, uh, some kind of energy from this. I'm like, I don't have to give you my energy. Like, so I've been much more protective about those engagements. Now, look, I always tell people, and it's funny cause it's coming up. So tomorrow I'm going to get my hair braided, Sarah. So she's got to take it down you know, wash all that good stuff. I ain't been inside a hair salon in about months. So I'm looking forward to this, right? So this is, uh, you know, from take down to put up, this is a six hour pro- uh, process. Oh, sit on your phone. And I'm on my phone. All the time. So I got time <laughs> tomorrow. So I'm telling you, as all right, I'm ready. this podcast, like, yo, you yeah. got, look, if you bring it to me tomorrow, <laughs> I'm eating your ass up because I got six hours in that chair. <laughs> I love that. One of my favorite things is when we did a panel years and years ago and you said you are you are snitching. And I just loved it because it's always associated with like a bad thing. But you were like, no, no, no. If someone comes onto my social media and is, is like racist and misogynist and homophobic, I'm 100% snitching because they deserve it. And I always took that as as a free reign for myself as well. Um, one of the things that you've talked about since leaving ESPN is that one of the reasons that you were able to, to work there for as long as you did and then leave and have it be relatively good terms, like you go on ESPN radio shows and you know you have a good relationship with a lot of people that you worked with is because you knew how to be yourself throughout that from the beginning throughout and then after you left. And I actually learned a lot from you in dumb stuff um, in terms of how to handle myself in this business, like silly things like after the ESPYs, you throw on a t-shirt and jeans and go to the club instead of keep, keep keeping your dress on. And, you know, the way that you would handle yourself around meetings and be, you know, casual. And I always felt like I was never going to be pretty and polished enough for this business. And I always felt like I wouldn't even have a shot because I didn't look like Aaron Andrews. And when I started doing stuff around you and you were so comfortable with who you were and didn't feel like you had to always be um, like this perfect anchor, you could just be yourself was such a good like lesson for me. And I wonder, you know, if that was a, if that was a choice for you throughout, um, this idea of like, I'm not going to change because I'm making millions of dollars. And, you know, clearly we all take that extra money and get all the fake things that are necessary. Fake eyelashes on, <laughs> on me. I got fake hair. I got, you know, enough fake things to keep me on TV for as long as possible. <laughs> but, uh, while still trying to be myself, I wonder if that's like something you had to remind yourself, especially as you got, 
what you used to describe to me as you money when you said, Sarah, <laughs> eventually you're going to move to Bristol because they're going to offer you you money. And I was like, no, I'm not. I'm staying in Chicago. And so far I have been right. You but, have been. I'm um, so proud of you for this. <laughs> <laughs> but I wonder if like, especially as you got higher and higher now that you're interacting, I mean, you're all over the, the media landscape, not just sports. If that's something you have to keep reminding yourself. No, I was never going to change because I didn't know any better and I was too stubborn. So, um, but like you, I, I had those same feelings, uh, that I didn't think I was ever going to be, you know, to, to borrow your exact phrase, polished or pretty enough for people to, um, want to give me a, you know, primetime position on television. And so I, I wasn't going to change to suit with they thought was their idea of what should be on TV or what viewers might, might like, because I, I can't, I'm not a good enough actor to pretend to be somebody else. And so, you know, certainly, I mean, I, I judged it up a little bit, you know what I'm saying? It's mm-hmm. like, I realized that I had to um, finally get my ears pierced because this is a true story. When I got to ESPN, I did not have my ears pierced. And so um, I had them pierced like when I was a child or whatever. And then as I started to play more sports, cause you know, how it is when you play sports, you always, or at least, I'm 7,000 years old. You're a little younger, but they always made you remove your earrings playing sports, right? That was a thing. No jewelry, all that. And so I got so used to doing that all the time that I just like stopped wearing it um, because I got tired of taking it off all the time. And then I just kind of forgot about it. And so years and years go by and I'm not even wearing earrings. And, um, you know, strangely enough, I was uh, uh, still able to have a love life and a social life. So um <laughs> Weird how that happened. But wasn't so, it Carrie uh, Champion who rolled around and was like, listen, you're getting your ears pierced. We're going no, to the ball. No, it actually wasn't Carrie. Wrong ESPN anchor. It okay. was Sage It was Sage Oh, Deal. Sage. Yes, okay. it was Sage Deal who, who was like, I will go with you, right? And so, because I was faking it with clip-ons. I'm not even kidding. And so, um, so yeah, I mean, I knew there was some upgrading that needed to be done. I had to learn about accessories and right wear the right TV colors. And I didn't mind doing that stuff because I didn't feel like it intrinsically changed who I was. And even though I was never the girl to wear makeup every day. I like the way it looks. So I was like, oh yeah, this is good. You know, so some of the the changes I, I definitely embraced, but I was never going to intrinsically change and become somebody that I I wasn't. Um, Carrie and I have this conversation all the time. I mean, Carrie's gorgeous. Uh, Carrie has, you know, she's nearly six feet tall. She she looks like a model, and she. Um, I love the fact that she said when she got to ESPN, it was at ESPN. She was like, I was gonna wear little bitty skirts because that's me. I was gonna do this, that, the other, and here she embraces who she is. I did the same thing. I just did it um, in the opposite you know, direction. So yeah, I was going to go to company meetings, wearing a t-shirt and some jeans, uh, of which were clean. <laughs> and I was going to wear some tennis shoes. Cause I'm just like, Hey, y'all gonna have to love me like this. Cause right. I, I don't have an enemy to fake. Well, I appreciated it. Cause you know, I can't wear heels at all. And so as soon as I saw you rocking, you know, uh, tennis shoes at the Aspies, I was like, Oh, thank God. Of course. Then I tried to wear flip flops to like LeBron's party at a club in Hollywood. And if PK Subban hadn't walked by and told them to make, make the bouncer, let me in, I would have just been standing on the street they had in, a dress a, in, code? A, in an Aspies dress and flip flops. Like, come oh, on, that girl in there's wow. wearing like a sports bra. Uh, but I'm old. It was like, it was like in, in, you know, um, knocked up where he's like, listen, you're hot. I would tear that ass up, but you old. I feel like the guy was looking at me like, if you were hot and young and you were wearing flip flops, I would ignore it, but, uh, <laughs> you're on the wrong side of 30, honey. Now more than ever, we need people with the right skills to support our communities, especially the frontline workers who provide resources and care for those most in need. To help, LinkedIn is offering free job posts for healthcare and essential service organizations that need to quickly fill critical roles with the people who help us all. If you're hiring for one of these organizations, job posts on LinkedIn can help you quickly find the right people for your front line. LinkedIn can help you find frontline workers from its active community of over 675 million members. LinkedIn Jobs screens candidates for the skills and experience you're looking for and puts your job post in front of qualified people who meet your requirements so you can find the right person to quickly fill critical roles. To post a healthcare or essential service job for free, or if you're in another industry and have hiring needs, visit linkedin.com slash Sarah. linkedin.com slash Sarah. Terms and conditions apply. All right. You mentioned Carrie. You have a new show, uh, Disruptors with Jamel Hill and Carrie Champion on Vice coming up later this summer. Uh, 
inevitably people are going to say, okay, the new Jesus and Meryl, which is fine because that show is fire. And I, I liked it better on Vice than when it made the move, even though I still love those guys. But I'm sure it's going to be a very different show, starting with No Bear in Tim's. Uh, <laughs> yeah, it is a different show. Um, and although, you know, it's funny that you said Jesus and Meryl. It makes sense, obviously, because they, they got their start on Vice. But I feel like I hear... Um, an equal comparison to Michael and Jamel. Not that we're the yeah, same, well, but you always get TV shows with your best friends. You've that's got, what I do. Got the game figured out. <laughs> Correct. I was just like, you know, that that should be more in, incentive for people to be friends with me. It's like eventually we will do a TV show together. I'm waiting. So, <laughs> there you go. So I, um, so so I think that there that 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 is a dynamic that people look at, you know, comparatively and say, oh, you know, this is you know this is hers and hers or whatever. And it, but it, what's so funny is that some of the elements that made Mike and I successful um, are very apparent here. I mean, beyond just the, the, the chemistry part, the whole concept behind his and hers was playing up the differences and to some degree be, making it a nod at gender because, you know, you have his and hers. Mm-hmm. And with Carrie, uh, because anybody that can look at us can can kind of see the difference. It's like, uh, I'm short. I'm, you know, I'm five, five, right? Carrie's like damn near six feet tall. Um, uh, you know, again, she's, she's got this model-esque, you know, figure and stature about it, uh, about her. I am a, a, a tomboy who has to make sure that my shirt is clean all the time. <laughs> so it's like, there are inherent differences in us, you know, uh, physically, um, and just the way we think, uh, even though we're both black women, because for a long time, one of the things that we heard from producers, Mike and I, was that we uh, they didn't think we would work because we thought alike. Now, we know that they didn't really mean that. What they meant is y'all both black. That can't work because, you know, what was big in TV is is, you know, because of Tony Kornheiser and Mike Wilbon was white guy, black guy. Like white versus black. Like if white if Mike were a white man, we'd have got on TV a lot sooner. Mm-hmm. All right. <laughs> because it'd be like, oh, black woman, white man. We get mm-hmm. it. Right. And so with Carrie, it's, it's, it's the same thing. Oh, two black women, y'all probably think alike. Mm, we don't. So it's like, so, um, so I know that people will, uh, as you said, make the, the comparisons to, uh, to Jesus and Mero, but I feel like they, they, they also, or at least from what I've seen in some of the comments to, to me and, and Mike as well. But, um, yeah, I mean, we're, we're very excited about this. We think, you know, the good thing for both of us having left ESPN, what's super important to us is not just the creative autonomy that we get, ownership of the show. I mean, both of our production companies, uh, will get production credits in this. Carrie and I are the executive producers of it. But what's also important to us is brand alignment. And anybody who's watched Vice knows that their shows are, Usually pretty edgy. They believe in coloring outside the lines. They see oh, some you get to tell that strip club story for sure on Vice. That's right. That's right. <laughs> they get we get to you know we get to talk about the strip club. We get maybe uh, get to curse a little bit. I mean, we're it suits our personalities and more per, and more importantly, where we are in our careers with the multiple things that we're both doing and juggling. So um, it was just a really perfect fit for us, and we're excited about launching the show this summer and, um, you know, really being able to to take a deep dive in a, an array of different issues, show our range and, you know, obviously get some good guests. Yeah, it's exciting. Um, you've got that. You've got your podcast at The Ringer with Van Lathan, The Way Down Hole, uh, Way Down in the Hole, sorry, uh, which recaps The Wire, which I will admit I still have not seen. I realize that is a massive issue. I need to put it on the list. I also haven't seen Game of Thrones and like all other shows. But I remember my first couple appearances on His and Hers when I filled in for you. Um, if something would, about the wire would come up, I would like laugh and be like, yeah, cause I didn't want people <laughs> to know. Cause I was like really worried, especially on a like predominantly black show that I would be like, oh, here she comes, this white lady who hasn't seen the wire. But then later I got comfortable enough and I was like, who the hell's Bun B? Right. And then I would just get shouted down and I would ask you like what it meant to, uh, get it. There's traps I was trying to learn. Um, so I will admit now I'm comf- confident enough in myself to admit I've not seen The Wire, uh, but it's a show that everyone's obsessed with. So you've got that podcast at The Ringer. I'm curious because you are two people of color with a podcast at The Ringer, what you make of all the stuff around Bill Simmons and the comment he made uh, the other day to the New York Times about why there wasn't as much diversity on The Ringer's podcast side. He said it's not an open mic. Uh, meanwhile, his daughter has a podcast. I think his nephew's involved in stuff. A bunch of his friends are on them. Um, did that hit you wrong? Um, it did. And so, you know, the, the good thing is that um, 
is that Bill is always open to dialogue. And I, I can't speak for Van in any conversations that, that they may have had. Um, you know, because I know um, in a similar vein, this is sort of cropped up when all the hubbub uh, kind of brewed about the podcast that Bill and Ryan Rosillo did yeah. and talking about the, the nation's un- unrest. And I know Van addressed some things you know, with them, I believe on his podcast. And uh, I think he addressed some things with them behind closed doors as well. And so uh, I read the piece, obviously I was quoted in it and I made sure to tell the writer who was doing the piece that I am not a rigor employee. I mean, the podcast appears on his network, but I'm paid through Spotify and I have my own podcast on Spotify. This is just kind of a really mutually beneficial kind of a- arrangement, if you will. And so um, I could not speak to the leadership, the number of black people they got at the ringer. I just don't know their organization that well, um, per se. So I was like, I feel like, you know, this is, I'm maybe not the best person to talk to, talk to about this, but I can certainly speak to you about, you know, my history, uh, you know, with Bill and, and that kind of thing. So when I read the piece and I saw that comment, um, it definitely hit me all kinds of wrong. And I immediately texted Bill about it. And I, well, one, I, I had so much going on. I had completely forgotten to tell him that I had talked to somebody from the New York Times because I thought yeah, I should at least give my hands oh, up. There's where those ESPN rules would have helped him because you always I, have to ask. Can I? You, can I, I <laughs> yeah, you don't have to. You don't have to check it first with the ringer. He'd been, he'd been like, oh, by the way, can you sneak in that you really support what I said? <laughs> <laughs> so I I had totally forgot about this interview or whatever. And it, it's not like I you know filleted Bill or anything like that. So whatever. So I, I just totally forgot about it. I was like, my bad. I should have just. Told you that they called me and I talked to them, you know, whatever. However, since we're here now, let me tell you, let's talk about this comment that you <laughs> made. And, um, you know, I, I told him that obviously, you know, the rigor is his baby. I'm not trying to tell him how to run his business and I'm not trying to police what you say. All right. But I'm just telling you that when I saw that comment, it was harsh. And I'm going to tell you how a lot of people are going to perceive this. I was honest about that. And he sent me back, um, you know, some explanations, uh, you know, which I won't necessarily uh, divulge. Um, but I, I think uh, he and I will have a follow up conversation. Um, you know, I, I saw that NABJ, I know they tweeted him and, and tweeted the ringer and said, hey, we're here to help. If you need anybody, I would like to also offer that same help. But at the same time, I'm hoping uh, I'm hoping he understands how that came off. I don't know if I did a good job of explaining it to him. But I hope that from this, even though, you know, I, I do see that people, some people are using this as an opportunity to just level him, you know, just because he would, you know, he's going to face a certain amount of, he's polarizing in his own way. And I think a mm-hmm. lot of people look at the opportunities that he's had and they're using that as a, a launching pad to just completely unload on, on Bill Simmons. So, you know, I think he gets that, that, you know, that's going to, that part of it's going to happen, but um you know, even though he has me, he has Van, he just uh, launched a podcast um, on his network, uh, Bakari Sellers, uh, you know, who's excellent commentator on CNN, uh, former, uh, you know, former politician. Like he's, it, 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 there are things that I know he's had in the work. And, and, and look, there are black people I know he's tried to hire and he just missed out on. So while he's not perfect um, by any stretch, he needs to do better. The ringer needs to do better. And particularly with the black people who are working for the ringer, they need to feel supported because there's clearly something not happening there where they don't feel that way. He needs to do better. Um, and I just feel like he might just have a couple blind spots that with more dialogue, maybe, you know, some more information he could get better at. I don't look at Bill Simmons and see a lost cause. Right. Well, and that's the key, I think, during all of this. There's a there's a massive reckoning going on where it's not just okay to not be part of the problem. You have to be actively against the problem. It's not just okay to say I'm not racist. You have to be anti-racist. It's not okay to say I support people if your actions don't actually show that. And so instead of cancel culture where it's like, okay, in the past you haven't been perfect, so you're canceled, it has to be in the past you haven't been perfect. Now that we're telling you you're not perfect, how are you reacting to that? Is it defensive? Is it um, not taking it seriously? Or is it understanding that perhaps you didn't have a fully informed view of the problem? And the way people are reacting to it, I think, says the most about them and allows for people to give them the benefit of the doubt if they deserve it and not if they don't. That's one of the most powerful things. And it's so simple. But that Bamani Jones has been saying lately is we don't have to give everyone the benefit of the doubt. 
Not everyone deserves it. There are people who have said and done enough things to show us their heart. And now what they actually have earned is that they have to prove otherwise, that they don't get the benefit of the doubt. They get the opposite. And until they prove otherwise, we get to believe about them the very things that they've shown about themselves. Yeah, I mean, I I think that's a really uh, accurate way that that he put that. And uh, I, like a lot of people, um, heard the conversation he had with Will Kane about um, everything that happened with with Bubba Wallace. And I I thought Bo was just so spot on, particularly Mm -hmm. when he talked about, you know, that benefit of the doubt is that there are a lot of white people who are coming into the conversation feeling like they deserve it. And when it's just historically and presently, that's just not accurate. And, um, you know, and they can't, I, I, I get that everybody wants to look at themselves as an individual and not a part of a larger system. I understand that. Um, but even in the individuality there, uh, if you have participated in a certain level of, of silence about this issue, then you are in fact complicit and maybe they don't see it that way, but that's just kind of what it is. And so, um, I, I think, uh, that in this, you know, moment that we're having all this, what I don't want to see happen is a, a lot of white people get, you know, racial fatigue, which, you know, would be kind of funny because like black people talk about race all the damn time. Mm-hmm. Like we just like, we're very comfortable doing that. So if anybody should be fatigued, it should be us. So, um, but you know, I, I hope they really use this opportunity to learn and that's going to come with some shaming and, you just got to kind of take it at what it is. It may not be a perfect comparison, and I apologize if this analogy is too bad, but you know, as a woman who's been on the forefront of fighting against um, issues of misogyny, sexism, especially when you talk about, you know, women who've been um, violated, um, if you look at the, the Me Too, you know, movement, there's so much about what we saw and the reaction to that that's happening in this movement now. Mm -hmm. Like it's very, very similar. And even with how people talk about, um, you know, racism or whatever, I, I feel like sometimes I can, I can connect, get them to connect the dots. And I said, okay, replace everything you said with woman and rape and see how it comes off. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) All right. See if you still feel as confidently in your approach as you do. I mean, cause there was one thing that Will said that like really kind of grated my nerves when he was talking to Bo and he, talked about how, oh, the people that, you know, are, that need, there are people who, you know, who need to be convinced. Like, do I got to really convince you to hate racism? Do I? Right. You know, and this, is, and this is turning them off, seeing all of this. If this is turning you off and I have to convince you, then you're basically making the point, uh, you know, for people by saying that, like, yes, as Bo was trying to illustrate, the reason why there has been you know, uh, stops and starts when it comes to racial progress ain't because of the black people. All right. Right. So if we're still in this point of having to convince you, then we got a lot of work to do. Well, especially because people are showing their ass when they only want to talk about this noose not being a hate crime in Bubba Wallace's garage. They don't want to talk about the person who towed the Confederate flag, the Confederate flags lining up to the race, the potential twine noose in Sonoma, the comments from Dustin Skinner, Kyle Larson, who already got dropped from NASCAR for saying the N-word on a live stream. Like any of those you did not want to engage in because they were very clear and overt acts. It's the one that you want to point to, which is the sort of Duke lacrosse or the Brian Banks or the Jussie Smollett. The one-off that disproves is the only focus because it allows you to not have a conversation about the proven cases that that show you that it's everywhere. And it's, it's the same for rape and assault. I would say the difference, and it was interesting to talk to Professor Eddie S. Cloud from, uh, from Princeton, who's the head of the African American, uh, studies. Uh, he's the chair there. I asked him about whether they could learn from, uh, whether we could learn from Me Too in terms of this movement. And he said one of the, one of the difficult things there is what moved the needle most was the suffering and pain of white women. Mm, right. And if that's right. what causes people to care about women, and and sexual assault and, and harassment, what do you do then for a racial movement where the sympathy doesn't uh, transfer over? The intersectionality of it is not uh, achieved by most female, you know, white feminists and by society in general. And so that was interesting. And I do think um, that is a sticking point that will that will require um, some, you know, flexibility in terms of trying to move this Black Lives Matter movement in the same direction. But I do see progress. It does feel different than other conversations that we've talked about, other times that we've engaged in this, um, even in the sense of the center moving enough that companies maybe just in in statements and words right now have had to take the right side of things. But those are all receipts 
right? So like right. <laughs> you could come back later and be like, oh, that's a cool thing you're doing. Remember when you said this publicly, we can hold this up. And and if you don't adjust your actions appropriately, you know, you'll be able to be called out for it. Um, I'm curious, you do your podcast, uh, Jamel Hill is Unbothered. It's sports, it's politics, it's culture, it's all sorts of stuff. Um, you do this on Spotify. If people haven't heard it yet, are, is there an episode or two that you'd point to that they should start with or that they should dive in with? Ooh, okay. Um, what a good question, Sarah. I think you get paid <laughs> to do this for a living. Um, so I, I would say I'm in season two, uh, right now. And I, I would probably say of this season, I mean, I, they've all been, they've all been really, really good. The Regina King one, uh, was great. The John I Legend one. Yeah. Oh, John I love Legend. him. Yeah. John Legend. That was the, the, uh, season debut was with him and I got him to say, a particular cuss word that his wife uttered about the president. And it was <laughs> my favorite moment. I was like, you know, cause John is so smooth yeah. and just, you know, and he's, he's such a great guy and, and everything. So, you know, to get John, um, legend to say some really dirty words, uh, was awesome. Uh, cause I'm a child. So of course I would look forward to that. Yeah. Uh, in, in the first season, I mean, I, I really just looking back at the number of guests, if you want to talk about this moment in particular, the, the, um, the podcast I did with Benjamin Crump uh, was a really good one. The one I did with Michael Eric Dyson. Uh, if you want a little, something a little more, you know, lighthearted, uh, if you will, um, you know, Killer Mike, that was a good one. Uh, even though we, we did a combination of both. The one I did with, with Charles Barkley, um, you know, just or even the one that I did with my husband. Like that was yeah. <laughs> a pretty good one. Uh, we had a lot of fun doing that. And um yeah, so I mean, the the amount of, of people that I've been able to really talk to. Oh, oh and one of your uh, Chicago's finest, uh, Seth Meyers. Yeah, um, I love Seth Meyers. Yeah, had a lot of had a lot of uh, had a great conversation with Seth, who, um, you know, is just a, a dear person. Like, really enjoyed that one. So it, it was all across the spectrum, and yeah, it's a good time to be listening because they got some great guests coming up. Um, I think uh, the next podcast next week is is worth the five nine, and after that. Uh, Ellen Pompeo. So, oh, cool. Yeah, she's fascinating. She's she is. Like, it's funny because you know she plays a strong character on Grey's Anatomy, but in real life, she is a badass who has moved a lot of things. Whether that's salaries for people of color on the show she works on to her own, you know, pay and discussions around how things are done on the set. She's she's a badass lady. Yeah, um, I love her. So uh, really quickly, because we're running out of time here, you've already done the Spanish Inquisition, so you don't have to do it again. So I will instead inquire about Bravo's Below Deck, which, oh. first of all, <laughs> I'm mad at you because I do not watch Below Deck. I'm I'm not going to be holier than thou about my television watching. My I watch, question is, why not? <laughs> it's so bad, girl. I had to watch, like, and your shit was across two episodes, so I had to watch, like, two hours of it. Um, okay. How did this happen? And take us behind the scenes. Tell us the things that we would not know about below deck from, uh, from, from your bachelorette party happening on the boat. Okay. So it was like a pre bachelorette party. Cause I had another one that happened later. Um, where was the, the behind- second one? The second one was in, uh, it, it was in Jamaica. So yeah, it was in Jamaica, 22 women. It was, I saw some photos of that <laughs> and there was like, like some paddle boarding or like boating yes, or yes, yeah, it was some paddle boarding, some it was matching all, outfits. There was a lot. Out, it was yeah. all kind of shenanigans Extra. that happened. <laughs> right. So below deck happened as it was a surprise to me. I did not know. Um, one of my, uh, good friends, uh, from high school, she knows how I feel about this show. She had been secretly contacting the producers to let them know she was on the show with me, DJ, and she had been letting, you know, in contact with the producers, unbeknownst to me and telling them how much I love the show and how I'd be a great guest. Her convincing worked. Um, it was right around my birthday. She said, hey, you're going to get a call from somebody. Probably it might be a restricted number. Answer the phone. And I was like, this sounds really scary, <laughs> but I'm in. OK. And it was a, the casting uh, director for below deck. And they were like, Hey, we love you. We'd love to have you on, you know, just want to talk to you. And I was like, Oh my God, this is amazing. So we go through that process. We filmed it in uh, March of 2019. And the way it works is this is like, you know, I was the primary. So that means everything you want to do 
is based off, everything you do is based off what I want to do. Now your guests also fill out a preference sheet as they're called. And so they put some things on there I did not know were on there, namely the infamous cake. I had no idea that that was coming. And uh, the cake was- I was uh, very fat. angry on his behalf because he nailed that cake. <laughs> it was a very phallic symbol. A beautiful penis cake. Yeah, it was a beautiful penis cake. I think and- I saw at least one vein in there. He really took time- <laughs> He did as accurate as possible, and so yeah. I know. Um, I, I know it was hard to tell by the episode, but there was a lot of drinking that was going on. And you were hammered. You had that um, look, like that infamous photo of you, me, Michael, and Elica, and Mark Cuban, where your eyes are like yes. not there anymore. And I always yes. feel bad sharing it because it's not your finest moment, but it's a really good photo because Michael got the Denzel shirt and Mark Cuban yeah. photo bombing. And I always want to be like, I wish you could just take Jamel out of this because you know, yeah, I think. Jeff on that night. I mean, I think me being drunk kind of adds to it. And what was, what was great, what was great about that night is that I, we had like a 7 a.m. flight. We literally went from there to our hotels, picked up our bag. And I, I just, I cannot say strongly enough. This is a pro tip. Never pack when you're drunk. You can't find anything. Like it is. So I got up when I got on the plane. Um, I think it was, uh, I don't know if it was Golik and Greeny. Golik for sure. We were all sitting in, in first class and I was still shit faced. Like it was <laughs> unbelievable. And he was like, yeah, you had a time, huh? I was like, I did. Yeah. I think I went to sleep and stuff all the way through. But so anyway, for below deck, you're, you know, you, you can have as much alcohol as you want. All the, all the trimmings of like food, whatever you just say, what do you want to do? And then there's activities. Um, one of which we wanted to do a karaoke night. Um, and, but they couldn't play the music. So that, so that part you didn't actually see. Um, and then another one, you know, Thailand is known for as they call their performers that are called lady boys. And so we had them on the boat as well. So those are the two parts people never saw. And I actually was stunned that this was not on TV. So as drunk as I was at that, uh, at the, at that dinner table that day, I was much drunker than I, m- the night before. And I think <laughs> as drunk or equally worse when the lady boys came and, um, and performed. So you, and then the way we even started, I mean, one of my, uh, friends that was there, um, she fell off the jet ski. I floated too far out. They had to come get me. None of that was on there. I was like, oh, I'm shocked. Like, this is, this is, I was like, you guys did a good job of cleaning up the shenanigans <laughs> that you saw. And of course, you know, there was this, the infamous confrontation with Kate, which was not really that big of a deal. Um, however, yeah, they got to play that up. That's the, that's the whole point is like, you got to get the drama with the people on the staff and. Yeah, I mean, but she did, she did, she, she did seemingly have an attitude and, and realize I, I didn't see what happened. You know, I understand it now seeing the things that transpired before we even got there. And I was like, Oh, that being said, when I did watch what's happened, happens live the night my episode, uh, the first part one premiered. I had no idea she called me all those names. Uh, <laughs> and it was funny because I was texting with Kate literally that day. And I was just like, oh, yeah, you know, because uh, we had texted before then. So, like, we yeah. were totally fine. And I was like, damn, she called me all that. And, um, <laughs> you know, and anybody who knows me knows that isn't me. And I, I can't tell you, Sarah, the amount of hatred that I got from that. Like people thought I was what? asshole. They were just like, you must not understand reality TV. That was so clearly like, here's where we need to create a conflict. Yes. But a lot of people did not understand, you know, yeah. what that was. And because they played it up so much and based off our commentary, it was so spicy that people thought that I was on this boat acting like a rich, obnoxious asshole. And that could be nothing further you know, from, um, you know, from the truth. That's why they called us. And even Kate said it. She said we were the best charter they had all season because we were great. We gave them a yeah. great tip. Like, you know, we did the thing. So, um, so yeah, no, we, we, but all that being said, love the experience would happily, uh, do it again. Yeah. Well, it was fun to watch you, but you know, having to watch all the other below deck drama, I was like, yeah, this is not my jam. I got, we got to get you on board, man. Cause I watch not only below deck, but below deck mid. Those are like oh, my wow. two shows. Okay. Yes. I'm yeah, fully I- invested in this. Well, I'll have you know that I was accidentally on Real Housewives of New York this season because my uh, Cornell friends and I were in the background of their entire scene at a winery in the Hamptons that we did not get dressed up for. And so we showed up. We're like, oh, no, there's cameras everywhere. And we're all just like wearing sweats and like just sweaty and gross. But uh, (laughs) you and I are both Bravo stars is is I think the point I was trying to make there. Understood. Yeah. yeah, 
uh, clearly. Uh, we can keep talking forever because I have a million things that I can always talk to you about, but um, we have run out of time. So I guess you'll have to come back a third time sometime. Um, and maybe it'll be uh, when you can tell us more about the show with Carrie and you've got some shows under your belt, but uh, always good to catch up with you. I miss you, um, but uh, I miss everyone right now because I don't get to see anybody. <laughs> I well, miss life. <laughs> I, and it looks like, again, based off the way things are going, we oh, will yeah. not be off punishment for a while. No. But um, no, thank you, Sarah. I appreciate you having me on and uh, watching you from afar. I'm just so proud of all the things that you're doing and how you're just like continuing, continuing to crush it. And um, yeah, like you, you've just really seized um, uh, upon something that is hard to do at, at ESPN. It's like, you know, when I used to joke with you, as you mentioned before, about you're going to eventually have to move to Bristol. They're going to do that. I love the fact that you, much like uh, our good friend Dan Levitard, have been able to make the game come to you, so to speak. So yeah. that well, is... All thanks to my career fairy godmother. <laughs> still you. you have not been replaced. Okay. Uh, right, moving on. Uh, All right. Talk to you soon, lady. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Take care. That's what she said. It's time once again for South Bitch Sessions, where I rant about something that bothers me and I fix it. This week, it's when people get called out for doing something bad, and then they try to spin it around on the person doing the calling out. I'm not going to use any specific names of any websites or people. I'm just going to say that there are people who are working and doing their best to evolve and become better human beings. And all of us have evolved on some pretty big issues in society over the last decade plus, whether that's LGBTQ issues, whether that's issues of race in society and understanding and better educating ourselves on the ways in which our country was built literally on white supremacy and the patriarchy and how that's affected the ability for both women and people of color to advance. As long as we are earnest in our efforts, genuine in our change, and are willing to accept the ways in which we were uneducated or wrong before, we should not be canceled for things that are dug up from a decade ago. And I understand right now we're in this moment, this incredible pivot moment in our country, where it's worth calling out bad behaviors, actions, and beliefs, and finding out if those remain. But the empty sort of, let's start a trending hashtag because somebody has pointed out a deeply flawed and troubled and deeply problematic person or blog or space, and turn it around on them for one old tweet from 10 years ago. To me, that simply just shows that, you know, there are people that are actually, you know, interested in change. And then there are those who are just going to be defensive and uh, not be willing to address the issues within themselves. And honestly, one day if I snap, it's going to be about this because it's the same ass people who do this. They go digging and trying to find something. Um, and it doesn't matter to them whether that's that person's true heart. It doesn't matter to them whether that person has changed and worked to get better. Um, all that matters is the gotcha moment and turning attention away from the very clearly problematic people right in their own backyard, as they say. All right. I feel good about what we accomplished today. Let's work on actually trying to exact change in places that need it and change the minds and hearts of, of people that actually require it and not uh, go looking for ways to attack people who are on the front lines doing good work. That's, that feels um, silly. Then again, the people doing that are much worse than silly. There, I fixed it. If you've got a dilemma for me to fix, tweet it to me at Sarah Spain or go to the iTunes or podcast app, subscribe, rate, and review, and leave the dilemma in your review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs>